Hello and welcome to the Womankind Collective podcast with me, Lou Hawkins-Thompson and me, Jinty Sheeran. Join us and our wonderful guests for a fun and educational weekly chat talking about women's health and the extraordinary of everyday life whilst battling our hormones and the laundry. Our topic this week is knowledge is power. And we talk to the wonderful Dr. Nigat Arif about the three phases of a woman's life, paying particular attention to phase three. You will recognize Dr. Nigat as the resident doctor on BBC Breakfast and ITV's This Morning. We discuss why representation matter and diversity matter and how she is breaking, no, actually completely shattering the stigma and taboo that surrounds subjects such as female anatomy, menopause, menstruation with her new book, The Knowledge. In the book Collective, we discuss chapters seven and eight of our book club club book Caitlin Moran's What About Men. Find out also how we are getting on with our WI and we have a new one don't we Lou? We do. Very exciting one and uh, well actually it's not that exciting it's a bit scary Um, (laughs) and finally I think Lou will have a quote for us. Um, So Lou we've had um, a couple of comments haven't we this week? We have and your big bro Neil he commented he enjoyed last week's episode with Melissa saying great listen again and what an inspiring person Mel is someone else that wants to help others he also added read the book and men playing with their balls Mm. but his wife who works in hospitality always has the alcohol hand sanitizer (laughs) ready when taking payment because she sees men's hands coming straight out of their trousers from ball fiddling to handing over cash. Charming, yeah. isn't oh, it? They don't, I don't know whether they know they're doing it. We said that last week. Yeah. But you don't want to be doing that, do you? Gloves, loose gloves. But well, I wouldn't be down there fiddling with my vagina, my vulva no. and my clitoris. No. Buying an ice cream? <laughs> it's <laughs> not really cream. the thing to no. do, is it? Um, the gorgeous Razia messaged us to tell us that she's listening to Sunday's Sunday's podcast, another cracking show, and she says she left her day job too as she couldn't cope with a Monday to Friday full-on job. Um, she says, I found that I couldn't do all the self-care that becomes so necessary during this stage of life. That's Completely so true, Razia. Yeah. You just need that headspace, yeah, don't you? Yeah, you really do. And lovely Jenny from Conversations with the Gods commented, I absolutely loved this chat. Such measured and sensible advice Mm. and a hugely inspiring story to listen to. Thank you so much, ladies, for your platform and your honest perspectives. You get such a lot out of your guests and it benefits us all hugely. Lovely, loving the new series. Keep up the good work. Sorry, Jenny. Thank you, Jenny. I didn't have my teeth in. How's your week been, Jints? It's been all right, Lou, thanks. Yeah, it's been okay. Super. Um, I found out <laughs> super duper. <laughs> I found out some interesting information about British architecture this week, Lou. Oh. I thought you might I might like you might like me to share it with you. And, and I might like you listeners. to share it with and me. you. And you might like, and I might like, and the listeners might like you we and me. You might like. Or oh, you may hate. I don't know. Shall I just say what it is? Yeah, crack yeah. On. I'm getting on my own nerves. Um, 
So have you heard of the British 21 metre rule in architecture? Lee? No. Well, in many parts of the UK, homes that face each other at the rear are required to be built 21 metres apart. I thought of your house, but you've got a road behind you. You've got a little you? back lane. You've got a back alley. lane. And then if it's you've like got a Coronation road. Coronation Street. If you've got a road or another house. No, then the back garden and then the house. So we've got, an, so we've got house, back garden, alleyway, back garden, house. Oh, Okay, so this uh, this is this is you because it's houses that kind of do back yes they back onto each other. So the twenty one meter rule, according to the Sterling Prize winning architect Anna Lee Riches, is a bizarre hangover from nineteen o two. Originally, it was intended to protect the modesty of Edwardian women. So the urban designers Raymond Raymond Unwin and Barry Parker walked apart in a field until they could no longer see each other's nipples through their shirts. <laughs> it's very scientific. It's very yeah, and done by men. And women, done by men. So kindly. The two men measured the distance between them to be 70 foot, which is 21 meters. And this became the distance that it is that is still used today, 120 years later, to d- dictate how far apart many British homes should be built. And it's all down to women's nipples. And that was in 1902. So my house was built in 1899. Yeah. So we, I might just be under the 21. You, can you go measure it for me? 21. <laughs> I'll have to go in Can Doris's get, back garden. Stand there with with nothing, with no top on. Get Steve nipples to go and, and the back, see if he can see your nipples. Old bedroom. <laughs> yes, see if he can see your nips. <laughs> I think he probably would. I thought architecture was a little bit more scientific than that. Yeah, but you not, know. not to do with nipples. I, I would hope that that would be changed now with the... Um, sustainability and things you'd think they'd be building homes a bit more on you know mm. keeping warm and, and using less energy rather than whether you could see somebody's nipples from 21 meters or not there we go, there we go. anyway how was your week Lou well, uh, well yeah I've had a yeah it's been okay this week um I had a lovely day yesterday met our daughter um so she came halfway down from London um from to Devon not to Devon but we went halfway up so we we're in in Somerset in other words any more details on where you met Lou <laughs> she wore a red scarf oh did she what did you wear and how did you get there and how long did it take a long time and this is what I'm getting at it took a long time to get there because oh. when she was leaving London there uh the the tubes she had a problem with the tubes and couldn't get to Paddington station so she had to jump on a bike um, she can get a taxi, jump on a bike. So thought, and then, then this little story, not a story, this popped up on my feed actually. So I want to talk to you about a lady talking about transport. This is where my link's going. <laughs> so talking about transport, a lady called Jenny Berry. Yeah. Anyway, Jenny is a disabled woman and wheelchair user. She and uh, she was made to crawl up the stairs <gasps> at London Dalston's overground station due to a broken lift. But staff at the station were seen giggling at her. Oh, my God. Yeah. To add insult to injury, it was announced that the lift had been repaired just as Jenny had reached the top of the stairs. Lou, this is horrendous. It's horrific. So Jenny actually filmed herself climb up the stairs from the bottom. So she obviously set her camera up. And I've had a look and she's got a nice social media feed as well. So, Mm. Um, And Jenny said that there was no signage at the previous station that she had left from to say that the lift was out of order. 
but frustratingly there were no staff around to assist her to get to a more accessible station. Now, Mark Evers is the chief customer officer at uh, TFL, and he said, we are deeply sorry for the distressing experience and we are urgently looking into this incident. So I thought this cannot, cannot be a one-off. I was just thinking the same. Exactly. He said, we're looking into this incident. There's more than one disabled exactly. person. Yes. Thank you very much. So I had a, did a little bit of research and according to Disabled World, which is an online disability resources and news forum, only 31% of London underground stations are fully accessible. That was, this was in 2021. And the network has only seen a 6.9% improvement in accessibility over two years. And 67% of disabled people say they are, they, they're unaware of TFL's accessibility lanyard schemes, which they've got. Um, and 70% of disabled people said they would like to use public transport more than they currently do. So obviously that is a huge problem and one that I hadn't even come into my sphere of thinking. It's disgusting. That's Absolutely what it is. Absolutely disgusting. Uh, I mean, the, so what you're talking about there, Lou, what you mentioned, if anyone needs to know, is the TFL um, Offer Me a Seat scheme. So you can get this badge and basically it's a big blue badge that says, please offer me a seat. Mm -hmm. And then you can so they, wear that. It doesn't mean to say that but people are. People can't get on the bloody train no, they in can't the first place or the, the bus no. or like you say, get, get on there. Good for her for videoing it. Today, we are joined by Dr. Nigat Arif, who is a GP specialising in women's health and family, plan pla family planning with over 16 years experience at, on the NHS and private practice. She is based in Buckinghamshire and is able to consult fluently with patients in Urdu and Punjabi. She lives with her husband and three sons. Dr. Nigat is also a medical educator and provides teaching to local trainee GPs, as well as at national and international conferences. She has worked and still works to raise awareness on menopause and women's health care in black and Asian women. She is the ambassador of many wonderful charities, including Wellbeing of Women, where she has joined forces with grassroots organizations to form the Health Collective to ensure that care pathways meet the needs of marginalized communities. Now, you will recognize Dr. Nagat as the resident doctor on BBC Breakfast, ITV's This Morning and BBC Look East. She also hosts her own Sunday breakfast show on BBC Three Counties Radio. She has regularly written various publications, including Stylist, Hello, Red, Good Housekeeping and Women in Medicine. And her work around menopause is featured in British Vogue. Dr. Nagat has won many awards in recognition for her exceptional services to raising awareness in women's health in the UK. She is very active on, the fantastic, on her fantastic social media channels. And last year, she published a brilliant book, The Knowledge, which is a guide to female health from menstruation to menopause. <laughs> Welcome, Dr. Nigat. After that <laughs> huge introduction, I don't think we've got time for many questions. <laughs> oh, gosh. Do you know what Thanks. my husband was going, who is this woman that you're talking <laughs> It sounds phenomenal. Yeah. Does it does it feel strange when when you know when people describe you because you've done I mean that's probably not everything you've done, but you've done a huge amount. I think it's strange 
to me because I'm still slogging it as a GP and I'm still in my surgery and I'm still doing my coil clinics and um, at the heart of it I'm, I'm a mum to three boys and they are the reason that I do so many things and they're my inspiration and I love being mum but I think that when you do weird and wonderful things like um, you end up going to 10 Downing Street to get the point of light award from the prime minister or you end up going to the house of lords to talk about why menstrual health is so important for the well-being of women or you end up going to work with Google and YouTube because I'm a health content creator working with the World Health Organization. And in the pandemic was doing loads of stuff with the UN, trying to get loads of messaging around the vaccine, um, particularly because we knew that it would save lives and it has um, on multiple mm -hmm. occasions demonstrated that. So it it's rather surreal because I do all of that. And then I, I'm in my clinic three days a week. Yeah, yeah. That keeps you grounded. Oh, Your yeah. patients keep you grounded, no doubt. And my parents keep me grounded. My mother <laughs> me because um, she doesn't speak English. So we speak Punjabi. That's our first language in our house. English is actually our secondary language. And so it's a real juxtaposition because I'm going on about vulvas and vaginas and menopause. We, we don't have those words in our language. Wow. And so my mother is very conservative. And so her only take is your lipstick color was too bright. You know, your hijab wasn't in the right way. Did you have to wear that dress, darling? And then she'll hear what I've done through the grapevine, through her friends. And then she'll phone me and she'll say, Mrs. Siddiqui said that you talked about vulvas before 8 a.m. on BBC Breakfast. Do you have no shame? <laughs> I love that. Oh, that sounds, that sounds like mums, like a typical mum, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah so, uh, it's very much this it's a huge I mean I have to when I put myself in their shoes it is a huge culture shock because a to have a woman with a hijab on tv is still so rare so rare yeah. a woman of color a Muslim woman on top of that a woman with kids and then in our culture you know the culture that I come from particularly the norm is still that you do the household amenities and um you sort of stay in the background. Uh, I, there's, there's that sort of saying, women shouldn't be seen or heard, uh, which you think about only being around in the Victorian times. But unfortunately, it's still in some cultures is the way that it's viewed, that it should yeah. be the status quo. Well, we absolutely... Well, you're breaking all that. Yeah, anyway, you are breaking, goodness. shattering mm. a lot of the stigma. So we, we absolutely loved your book. So congratulations. And we feel like, that it's like having Dr. Nagat in our pocket. Um, it's everything that you represent. It's awareness, it's education, it's fairness, it's equity for women um, and, and those assigned female at birth. It's all wrapped up in a huge blanket of empathy and compassion. It feels really warm you know really warm with all that education in there too is it a project that you've wanted to do for a while and and how did it come about I carried this book for about 10 years and that's a real honesty because I am that woman of color and I remember very vividly walking into various healthcare settings wearing a hijab and a shalwar kameez and a healthcare professional uh, mainly white and male assuming that I can't speak English or I've just stepped off the boat so it's that look that you get it's instantly because people have these preconceived ideas and these prejudgments and then I start talking and people are like 
oh, you talk like us. And I started working as a, a salary GP um, in a quite a well-to-do area um, where there's mainly a white Caucasian population. And when I took over from this very well-established GP who was there for 25 years and took on a list, uh, for the first six weeks, the patients just phoned because they read my name and wanted to ensure that I could speak English and whether the English didn't have an accent. So you sort of start thinking all about the barriers of healthcare. And then on top of that, I'm a mother to three boys. And um, I joke that if I lose all my marbles, I want my boys to know what's going on with me. <laughs> so, so this book is as if I was, you know, sitting having a coffee and saying, okay, this is what you need to do. And it's not just a particular form in your life because as women, we are cyclical hormonal beings and we transition three times. Men transition, say, you know, born and then puberty. I suppose you could say midlife crisis. Yeah. <laughs> I joke, but <laughs> I, women are like, we, have, we are born and then we have puberty and then we have our fertility years. And then we have perimenopause, menopause, postmenopause and beyond. And I honestly feel and believe that women are like these ever evolving butterflies and they are constantly finding new colours and new ways to grow their wings at every different stage. And I wanted to represent that. Yeah, and I think you've done it beautifully. I mean, reading through the book, I've got two daughters and I just wish at menstruation this book was around. Mm. Yeah, it's it's something that's been reflected back a lot um, to me. And and it's mainly because um, the book really is a journey for Nagat. I mean, nine-year-old Nagat landed in rainy England um, with flip-flop shoes and a summer dress because, would you believe it, my father had um, told my mother, we're going to an island. So instantly she was thinking we're going to the Caribbean. And it's green um, and got lovely beaches um, and it's sunny. Um, and so my mother genuinely did think she was coming to the most glorious island ever. Uh, when she and by the way, my mother is a bit of a princess. So she grew up on a farm uh, where there was mangoes and sugarcane trees and and just uh, canals and rivers. And so from that to come to Heathrow, where she's got three children and it's wet and it is like biblical rain the day that we arrived. That was my first memory. Um, but for me, it was freedom because I was told you can go to school, you know, it's for free. And you're, the fact that I was a girl wasn't going to be a hindrance. And then when I started my periods, I had no clue what's going on because I just started to grasp English. I started my periods when I was about 11. So sort of missed the whole conversation at school and was reliant on my mother. But my mother equally didn't have the knowledge to be able to share it with me. And she was petrified that her 11-year-old daughter has suddenly started bleeding, gave me the thickest, whitest pads. Oh. You remember yeah. those? You remember? Oh, yes. Oh, <laughs> God. Like, they were horrible. Couldn't put, you just couldn't put your legs together, was, could you? No, like, like having a pillow between your yeah. legs. It was, it was. And I used to get horrible abrasions and I didn't want to do PE. I used to skive out of PE. And so to now know that you can have pads with wings, I mean, it was when I was about 15 years old and I'd again got, because they rubbed against my thighs, I'd got an abrasion because that skin is so fragile. Um, and I went to the nurse and I said to her, look, I, I, I'm in pain. And she goes to me, you know, there's pads with wings. And she took out like an always pad. And that was like a flipping revelation, honestly. <laughs> like, oh my God, there's, and also it soaks it up and holds it. And yeah. then there was, now 
we've got like period cups. The world's your oyster. And so the menstruation bit of the book is actually written for like younger Nagat because it's women of color and it's for those who are transitioning, say for example, they're from the LGBTQ plus community or you know, they're transitioning from female to male or they're non-binary. Um, and for them, that's also a really scary time because they're also looking at what their identity is, but where, as well as deal with the biological monthly cyclical change that happens. Yeah, it really is for everybody. What, while we're talking about young Nagat, what would young Nagat think of where you are now? Would she be surprised? Oh, she would be so shocked because honestly, I up until 2020, I lied, till the tail end of 2019, I hated being photographed. I hated having my picture taken. I was a lurker on Twitter. And that's really because I used to lurk seeing what other doctors were saying and talking to each other. And yeah, I was a very, I'm a very good lurker. I'm like a peeping Tom. <laughs> <laughs> Stealth-like. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Like, honestly, I'm such a gossip. Like I get in, when my patients come in, firstly, everything's confidential. There's a circle of trust, but I'm always like, so when did you have sex last time? Great, <laughs> 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 right, because you can have the most intimate personal conversations. And that really feeds into the fact that I like I'm really interested in people like and um, to me social media was very much this distant thing where I couldn't really connect with people but I loved humans that humanity side of it that we have when we see people in person Um, and the lockdowns happened and we what I knew and loved left me and so I was then forced to go on social media And I realized that the conversations that I was having with my patients behind screens, telephone calls, Zooms, where you get turned into like, you know, your avatars are cat. And that's that's when I realized I'm having the same conversation again and again. And if I could just put on my camera screen and say something for 30 seconds to a minute, and then that goes out, not just to one patient, it goes out to, 20,000 people and as it happened it went out to like one or two million people then um that's a public service that I could do I I suppose the only reason I started doing it was because I wanted to feel useful I felt really inept as a clinician in a pandemic thrown in at the deep end the way of life as a GP as I knew it changed my clinics to do cervical screening and coils and HRT stopped um, and everything was by telephone so I lost that human touch and I wanted to find that humanity on socials. And it's surprising that you can can't you? You can, you can really you know feel that warmth um, through the socials. I know there's a lot of negativity as well as and unfortunately you've probably seen um, you know some of the, the brunt of that but there's also some a lot of warmth and a lot of love on there isn't there? Well, take your podcast, for instance, um, it and your whole brand as womankind. It's it, there's a there is a real ethos of kindness, but beyond that, there is that fact that you want to reach out and hold your hand out to people who you can't physically do. And now we realise that it's something that we're just going to have to learn to do because mm-hmm. we are all different places, etc. And um, you know, we have to think about the environment. You can't physically always get into a car and travel because you've got to think about the carbon footprint. And so if you make sure that your ethos of your brand 
is always embedded in humanity, then it is doable. Um, and that comes across and how authentic you are as a person. And if you remain true to your roots, so I share as much as I want to share. I'm very careful about sharing about my boys um, and my kids, but that's that's personal to me. Um, but if uh, there's always a level of empathy and knowing that you come from a place of privilege, regardless of where you are in the world, I am totally aware I'm a very privileged woman, although I have my barriers, but I do have a level of privilege to say somebody else in another part of the world. Um, so you can then find some sort of balance within that and then go back to the fact that you're being human because as clinicians they take everything away from you to stop being a human because <laughs> you're clinical and yeah. clinical is very scientific and it's black and white or it's data and it's numbers but at the end of the day the person's lying in bed in front of me or the person that's walked in through my doors as a g as, at my gp surgery is not a number is not a statistic that they are flesh and bone and yeah. so you've got to then unlearn all your clinical stuff so it's really weird how they make us really sort of cold and robotic but then you've got to learn how to be human and I think yeah. learning human is what we are we are forgetting to do yeah it's uh, that old bedside manner isn't it that yeah that, yeah and that's so important because being human you're going to get so much more out of your patients and they're going to open up so much more particularly for women and marginalized um, groups because we're so used to not being heard aren't we not being listened to and if somebody walks into your um, uh, doctor's office and, it, and actually feel listened to you they're halfway there aren't they they're halfway being healed and that is a nail on the head and actually it's an economically viable argument because then they're more likely to cut uh, to comply with a treatment plan because it's not forced upon them it's negotiated with them they are the patient and they know their body the best so they're hand holding the clinician just to be able to back up with the science and the data and the risks versus benefits and time and time again it has shown that with a good bedside manner it's never about whether you gave them the best fangled treatment that day and it was all whistles and bells is how did you make that person feel at the moment and if they felt that they could trust you with their life because essentially as you know as a, you are dealing with people's lives and their loved ones their babies you know like their father with dementia and uh, all sorts of chronic diseases that you're dealing with and if they if they feel that they've got your trust um that is the magic that happens yeah. and that's when actually economic wise they're less likely to make recurrent appointments they're more likely to comply with their treatment plan they're more likely to be able to make real lifelong changes be it stopping smoking cutting out alcohol weight management healthy diet they're more likely to want to make themselves better so it's the person heals thyself so in the introduction you write that removing the shame and stigma stigma from women's health is an ongoing mission of mine and forms a central theme of this book. And throughout the book, we have these amazing, diverse illustrations. I mean, we absolutely love them. So how important was it for you to have those illustrations in the book? So I went to my publisher, um, <laughs> I'm and uh, I have to read copiously, and I'm a visual person. And reading all the medical books growing up through medical school in the NHS, I just never saw women of colour, or there were yeah. some conditions and yeah I mean we're talking in 2024 there are still 
So, so my book has pictures of vulval lichen sclerosis and vulval planus, and you will not find pictures of vulval lichen sclerosis on black women in the mainstream NHS website still. Yeah. Um, and uh, even say the black fetus. So I work very closely with Bee Illustrates, which is a brilliant illustrator, Chidi Byron, uh, a Nigerian uh, neuroscientist, but he also is an illustrator as well. And then found this amazing illustrator um, in New York who really understood uh, the the sort of package that I wanted in regards to it doesn't it doesn't have to be black women but it has to be all different shapes sizes color um, I want stretch marks on women <laughs> because yeah. they're normal real women <laughs> real women I want I want a woman after having a po a baby not to have a six pack she's gonna have a belly because that's normal <laughs> oh yeah uh, bring back into like a six pack I want an older woman not to look old like older women in their 50s i mean they're freaking hot they are so amazing i i've got an 83 year old woman look at you guys i mean you're gorgeous <laughs> um, i have an 83 year old patient who plays tennis three times a week and two weeks ago i changed a marina coil because she wants it as a part of her hormone replacement therapy components and why not she is exactly and so it's really a number and i think that i really wanted to reflect that but also reflect women of all different sort of ethnicity and faith. We don't see, say at the moment as it stands, we don't have a lot of guidelines around Ramadan and hormone replacement therapy. So when Muslim women want to fast, having transdermal HRT or systemic HRT, such as a patch or a gel, they were removing it thinking that it's going through their bloodstream and is a nutrition and actually it's not. And because we don't have guidelines, but we've got guidelines for hypertension and kidney disease and, um, uh, diabetes for Ramadan so it just shows how women's health the faith aspect nobody had just thought about it um, mm -hmm. for example you know FGM female genital mutilation which my book covers that's a lifelong chronic infliction it's a huge uh, abuse of women or women and girls and um, we don't think about topical vaginal estrogen for these women um, if they're breastfeeding we know that your estrogen will drop and if you've got if you've been mutilated on top of that, then you're going to get symptoms of the genitourinary syndrome of the menopause. And we have no guidelines from the RCGP. Mm. Yet we know 2 million women globally are affected by FGM. And we have it in the UK as well. Not that it's yeah. practiced, but women who are suffering from it, that affliction. And so I wanted to make sure, I went to my publisher and I said, if I write a book with you, it's going to be what I learned over the last couple, like my decade as a women's health expert, but I want black vulvas. <laughs> and she just looked at me and she just went, okay, that's fine. <laughs> it's, it's, crazy. it's a crazy thing, right? So my publisher was really happy with it. We wanted, you know, we wanted black anatomy. We wanted black vulvas and vaginas. Uh, we wanted uh, women of color. And then when the first picture came back to me of um, uh, the black vulva, which is I think on page six, uh, the printers and everybody else, there's some mumblings, and they just went, you know, the writing, we can't get the writing on the page because it took, it takes up a whole page. If you have a look, it, it takes up the whole page. And they said, the more pigment that you add, the more expensive the book becomes. And they said to me, look, Dr. Nagat, we can't write on the uh, anatomy, on the diagram. Um, we're going to have to go around the diagram yeah. because we can't write on top of it because the pigment's too dark. Um, could we lower the shade of the skin? 
and that's when it hit me I was like oh that's why it's, yeah. it's a cost argument but also it means that a whole you know global nation of women of different skin tones just aren't represented because it was the anatomy of it exactly and so my publisher was so brave she just went go around go around the anatomy make it big she went yeah. just make it bigger yeah rather than changing the skin tone yeah. rather than yeah. changing the skin tone because she goes back yeah, yeah. To, and this is in 2022 and the, the conversation was could we make it pale because then we can write and you can see the writing the black writing wow and it occurred to me that this is where we are still so stuck in yeah. regards to representation and it takes someone brave just to go well flip it make it bigger then go round yeah. the go round the it, it, it's a whole page it's fantastic it's whole, <laughs> i'll tell yeah. you a really good story um my mother was not impressed <laughs> <laughs> I think we need to meet your mother. <laughs> she's, a, she's like a Pakistani woman, Punjabi, and Punjabi women are strong women. And I, I brought the book home and it's it's beautiful to look at. It's yeah, like a it gift. It really is. Cost. Yeah. And that's done on purpose because I wanted this book to be like a gift that you give to three generations of your family um, as you do recipe books and it sits on the coffee table, but it's an out, about your body. Yeah. My father was just so happy that it said his surname on it, you know, Arif, because I, I still have my maiden name, although I'm married. My mother got it and she opened it up to that precise page. <laughs> and she looked at me and she just went in Punjabi, which is translated as you couldn't find anything else to do. Like, how dare you? <laughs> and I went, this, this is what I do. Like, this is, this is my this work. Is it. And, and mum, you've got one. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And my father was like, can I have a look? Can I have a look? My mother just went, it's not for your eyes. You need to avert your eyes. (laughs) So to this day, uh, my parents have actually not read or seen further into my book. (laughs) That's as as far as they've got. Page six was enough. But all all it takes, like you say, is just look, it's not not changing um, the obvious thing. It's, It's looking looking outside the box a little bit isn't it and you know and looking at that and talking about that particular um picture that you were mentioning um it's got literally all the parts of uh, the vulva they're mentioned and a couple of pages on which I was going to ask you about before we even go into the three phases that you talk about is about self-examination and that is absolutely fantastic so was that a really was that important for you to um because we don't talk about this enough do we yeah I read somewhere that to take away taboo and shame to stop giving it oxygen bring it out in the open yes and if you bring it out in the open it takes the oxygen away and then it's 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 not a taboo anymore and so I was really clear about my young girl that I wanted to have who was doing a self-examination because you you firstly never use the right anatomical parts you never say vulva or vagina because they're dirty words air quotation marks and if you look at Punjabi uh, culture most of the words for our anatomy around the vulva and the vagina and urethra and the clitoris they're all swear words and so you don't have the lexicon um so you can think of all the swear words in your mind straight away when you're thinking mm. about it already now, because we've got similar swear words in English as well, which are used to put down men and put down women. Yeah. Women say, say it to each other. Yeah. So derogatory words mean that actually you're embarrassed to even look at that area. And so if you don't look at it, you don't understand the changes that happen through puberty, fertility, because honestly, your lips and your labia will change right up until 
perimenopause and beyond. And if you start doing it at a younger age and you know your anatomy and you're using the right words, the biggest factor for me is, is that it takes away, say, even more sinister undertones that we see a lot, which is abuse of younger kids. You know, And if they are looking at themselves, examining themselves, then it means that we can prevent the horrific crime that happens, which is abuse, which I come across as a GP um uh, in my line of work you know we have safeguarding for children mm. for teenagers for for you know vulnerable women those with learning disabilities those who are neurodiverse say autism or adhd and so how do you make sure that they are empowered about their bodies well stop giving the taboo and shame oxygen show them how to examine them yeah. yeah. And that also, um, if, if you know the parts of your body, you know the correct language to use and we know how to examine yourself. It also helps when talking about consent, doesn't it? Um, because I think that is a huge problem with, with parents and children, that barrier of talking about sex before their adolescence. But it, it can open up that whole kind of consent conversation. Yeah, I think it's a really murky world about consent because I come from it as a cultural view. And I and I know that as a Pakistani woman, talking about consent with boys is never really something that's a mainstream conversation within households because there's this assumption that, well, our sons will just somehow by osmosis learn, which is an yeah. absolutely ridiculous thing. And so what do they do if they can't learn about it in the household and the safety of their parents because their parents are embarrassed or don't have the knowledge is they'll turn to, you know, porn or their mates or and then be taught all sorts. And we know both of us know when I mean, we've got kids um, all three of us. And so we know that kids can be exposed to just the most horrific stuff. I, some of the stuff that I see in my clinics or I used to do sexual health for a long time. Uh, the issue around consent was that. Um, she she just blinked and I thought that was her consent. And it's like, no, like, there, there is there is so many layers to consent and yeah. teach somebody consent is an actual skill. Just like we teach people to say please and thank you. We should be teaching that skill of consent consistently. And I cover that. It's it's yeah. quite yeah. simple. And then I think it, as well, we, we I was never taught at school. We had we've had this conversation numerous times, Nigat. I wasn't told, we weren't told about the vagina and the vulva. No. It was the vagina. It was it was a hole, you know. Oh. But break breaking it all down, so you know exactly yeah. you you know your your parts. It's it's just fantastic. I'll go beyond that because when I was at school, I mean I'm I've just turned forty. You know I'm a 1984 girl. Yes, happy birthday! Yeah. It was the other day. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> beautiful. I was leaving I, school I, in 1984 saying that at school the boys were taken separately and the girls were taken separately and you're absolutely right the whole everything between your legs was the vagina that yeah. was it it wasn't the vulva but then you were never taught about the clitoris you were never taught about sort of labia majora labia minora you were never taught about the perineal gap the posterior fouchette and the perineum so if you don't know all those intricate parts then I think that especially if you don't know about sort of your clitoris and you don't understand it and you're exploring and then you're shamed for masturbating and you're ashamed for knowing what you're, you know, for that women can have pleasure. I think women and pleasure, and I say this as a woman who's Muslim and wears a hijab, is such a taboo subject. I read somewhere yeah. that the uh, largest group of uh, age of women who purchase vibrators are those who are 40 and above. And I just thought to myself, 
that's freaking awesome. You know, yeah. women uh, in their next transition, when they come to parent, have suddenly realized, actually, my body and my pleasure is for me. Yeah, they're sexual and, beings. Exactly. And I, what you said there, the fact that women are sexual beings is still seen as quite taboo and dirty. Because it's almost like, well, no, women are just there to have periods and have babies and breastfeed. And that's in all cultures as well. Yeah, exactly. And so to break that apart and say, no, 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 here's your anatomy. Explore your anatomy. Mm. Actually find your clitoris. And that's not dirty, by the way. And then explore pleasure. Because only if you know pleasure yourself, where you are happy to be touched or not touched, or what, what, you know, what gives you pleasure your body is this incredible thing that you only get one of. Yeah. And to know that there is culture or shame or, you know, patriarchy or medical misogyny that has denied you to understand this incredible thing that you've got. And that's why I started with the first page to say, we need to thank our bodies. We don't thank them. Yeah. And we moan about getting old. We moan about wrinkles. We moan about the fact that, you know, we've got a flabby arm. Or we moan about the stomach rolls or the stretch marks from having our babies or the fact that our breasts have now changed uh, since breastfeeding. But what a privilege. Yeah. What a privilege to get all of those sort of tiger marks along the way. Yeah, they're yeah, life marks, absolutely. aren't they? They're marks of life. Yeah. They really oh, are. But we've <clears throat> edged out of them. Media has taken over the you know the bikini but the ads and the whole ethos of you know the youth in is the elixir and beauty that's the most beautiful thing ever um and uh pop culture the music industry everything has driven the fact that old is is seen as surplus to excess and you're for the heap now and i really want to drive that change even when i was 20 i used to look at older women uh, who were sort of a decade older than me or two decades old. And I used to be fascinated by them. I used to think yeah. they were incredible. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And they are incredible. Yeah. They really, they really are. Okay, can we talk about phase three, please? Yeah. So the, the midlife years. So it, in your book, it includes early menopause, menopause symptoms, urinary incontinence, <clears throat> sex issues, which we've been talking about, therapies and HRT, to name just a few topics. And in this chapter, you write, in my clinical experience, there is no individual who cannot have treatment in some form to help relieve menopausal symptoms, even those who have or have had cancer. So this area, it can be really confusing for patients and GPs alike. So can you explain a little bit about HRT and alternative treatments for those who can or cannot or choose not to um, have hormone replacement therapy? Yeah. So the first thing is, is that um, we've got to really look at people as holistic views. So I say that menopause um, is one year without a period. Postmenopause is one year, one day. And then you're postmenopausal for the rest of your life. The reason that happens is because you're losing <clears throat> estrogen is this lovely lubricating hormone. We know that we need it for our immune system because our immune system uses estrogen as an immune modulator. We know that our immune system sits in our gut. A third of our immune system sits in our gut. So our gut microbiome and our gut health is healthy if our immune system is healthy. We also know that we need it as a component for our bones as well. We need it to keep our brain cells going. Um, it's what drives the growth of our fat cells. So if you think back to puberty, you were genetically programmed at the right age, at the right stage, with the right weight, 
for the fat cells to produce the sex hormones and your brain was going right put on that puppy fat because she now needs to start ovulating and then at some point the right amount of estrogen was formulated the lining of the womb thickened up but you didn't fall pregnant and that was your first period and so reverse that now you know two or three decades on you're coming towards perimenopause so that's menopausal symptoms but you're still having periods your estrogen is dropping but your brain is going but where's this lovely hormone i love it so it sends a signal back to the cells your fat cells and says do you remember that job that you did when she was in her puberty years do you mind doing that again but now we're in this age where you know, we've got into bad habits. Uh, we're probably not exercising enough and we don't want to get that middle weight because it increases our risk of heart disease and type two diabetes and it, our self-esteem and can trigger things like depression and low mood. Um, and also if your estrogen is dropping much faster then you could end up getting osteoporosis because of lack of vitamin D and we see that within Asian groups. So we have to think of the fact that your body Trust your body. Your body is built to make you survive through this normal transition, which is the menopause. However, not everybody has this blissful experience. And so for them, we've got to somehow replace those hormones back. Now, you could do that through exemplary diet. So if you look at Japanese and Chinese women, they have foods and diets which have been developed for generations. And they've been eating that similar diet throughout their teens and their 20s. So I'm talking about phytoestrogens, tofu, low fat, less processed foods that they're eating. They're less likely to have high levels of alcohol, so they're more likely to drink less. Um, there is that genetic factor as well. And so they don't always go to, say, hormone replacement therapy. But we also know globally we're a genetically diverse community. For those that need it, then taking low-dose um, systemic hormone replacement therapy. So that's estrogen or progesterone. And now we've developed it to be the most natural to the way it is that your body would need it. So in my book, I've categorized all the synthetic and non-synthetic systemic hormone replacement therapies out there, all the estrogens that are currently available on the NHS. My book is the first to do that because you could walk into the GP and just like you knew the pill, like Michael Guy, mm. uh, you know, the, uh, the Yasmin pill, you should be able to walk in using my book, knowing all the names of the HRT. So you can go in and say, I would like to consider estrogel, which is topical vaginal systemic estrogen. And I want to put it onto my arms or my legs. And I have a womb and I'll need a progesterone. And the body identical progesterone is utrogestan. Or you might say, I want to think of the marina coil as my progesterone component. And so systemic hormone replacement therapies are very different to topical vaginal estrogens. They only work in and around the vagina. So in my book, I've then categorized all the vaginal estrogen. Systemic HRT and topical vaginal estrogens can be used together. And systemic HRT is first line treatment for menopausal symptoms, not antidepressants, even for the psychological symptoms of the menopause. But then you guys will say, you know, Jinti will say to me, but Dr. Nagat, you said even those with breast cancer can have it. So let's look at that. So that's a generic statement. But if you look at the data again, is that if you look at topical vaginal estrogen, the data from that time and time has, again has shown that the uptake in the bloodstream is minuscule. 
so that it doesn't impact on the estrogen receptors in the breast. So it does not increase the risk of breast cancer, even if you've had breast cancer, have a family of breast cancer, a family history of breast cancer, or are going through oncological treatment of breast cancer. And there's DHEA, something called intrarosa, which is a type of testosterone that can be converted into low dose estrogen, it's E2 receptors. And even that can be given to patients who are taking cancer treatments. Now, this is not in the mainstream guidelines. So you would need to make sure that you discuss this very carefully with your doctor and your oncology specialist. But there's, in my book, there are references and data points as well to show that localized topical vaginal estrogen, even breast cancer patients can have them. So what about systemic HRT? So you talked about something that goes throughout your whole body, Dr. Nagat. Well, let's look at that. If you're going through oncological treatment for breast cancer, then it's not recommended. So we wouldn't try it then. However, we do know that even if you've got a family history, low dose uh, or the adequate replacement of systemic estrogen actually doesn't increase your background risk. There's three of us on this podcast. Our risk of breast cancer is one in seven, whether we like it or not. And as we get older, that risk increases. Because since we are female, we produce estrogen. We have the most amount of estrogen receptors in our boobs. So this isn't the exact science, but we know every month our boobs get a bit tender. And that's because estrogen is working on our boobs because the boobs, when estrogen works on it, causes inflammation in the cells. Where you get inflammation, you get mistakes. When you get mistakes in cells, you and I go breast cancer. So the data has shown that for women who your average healthy woman who doesn't drink or smoke and she's below the age of 60, giving her body identical HRT, estrogen and progesterone doesn't increase her risk of breast cancer. Giving her systemic HRT actually protects her against ovarian cancer and get this bowel cancer, which is something that we never talk about enough. No. Exactly, because you're adding that lubrication back to the cells. And remember, I said your immune system sits in your gut. Mm -hmm. And if your immune system is getting the immune modulator from estrogen, you're less likely to get autoimmune conditions. So we see this time and time again. So we see the lower risk of, say, thyroid conditions, which is an autoimmune condition, rheumatoid arthritis, autoimmune condition, fibromyalgia, autoimmune condition, um, SLE or lupus autoimmune condition so you look at all of this and you think there's a reason women are twice more likely to get autoimmune conditions in the postmenopausal phase of their life so on balance hormone replacement therapy systemic hormone replacement therapy is actually safer because we've developed it to a level that it is and the risks are lower and the benefits are higher for brain health heart health bone health and also your quality of life so that was really long, but I hope that no, no. that was so it's, succinct. That was and made informative. It, yeah, that made so much sense because, as as Lou said in in the question, there it's, it can be very confusing for people. We talk to a lot of people who are very confused about this. The, you know, the, there's so much in the media, isn't there? A report comes out of it take it it's good for you or it'll help don't take it it'll it'll do this and they, they the headlines kind of are very confusing so that that was absolutely brilliant to hear 
the biggest reason why the headlines are so confusing is because we had this awful study that was done, uh, the Million Women Study, which was non-randomized controlled, yeah. which was looked at women over the age of 60, given synthetic hormones, non-randomized, who we didn't check about their smoking and their alcohol um, or family history and put them on HRT. And lo and behold, women, yeah. unfortunately, whether we like it or not, we are at risk of breast cancer. By the very nature, we have boobs. And so it was then a blanket. And I was that doctor. I'll be honest with you. The reason I started doing women's health and menopause in particular was because around 2010, 2011, I was actively taking women off HRT and prizing the prescription out of their fingers and feeling atrocious. I, I was I, I hated those consultations or talking a woman out of HRT. And all she wanted was her hormones given to her so she could function, stay in her job and carry on with her life and not want to murder her kids and her husband. Yeah. You know, I digest. But yeah, it's true. Yeah, it's true. It is so true. Wanted to thrive. You know, we want we're not just beings that want to survive. We have we have, we want to thrive as women. We've done our dues. We've done our babies and periods and breastfeeding and the other side of it. Now our periods have stopped. Hurrah. But actually, we're now hit with the brain fog, the irritability, the night sweat, or the aches and pains. Anxiety. And the thing that got to me was the fact that we're not protecting these women for the future either by giving them their hormones back to them. I would never deny a patient with thyroid condition their thyroxine if they want, you know, because they were getting symptoms. And so for me, it started to go, right, I'm going to question this data because I don't trust this data. And I am very much, and I talk about medical gaslighting a lot. And I always get told by colleagues going, oh my God, don't talk about that. But I'm like, no, because as clinicians, you have to, question what you're being told mm. and I don't think we do it enough mm. I feel sometimes I should do it more um because you can only go by with the data that you were shown and and this is why I got very active in the pandemic as well because <laughs> uh the you know the public health England were telling us oh yeah but loss of smell and loss of taste and diarrhea are not symptoms of covid and if you've got no travel history you cannot get covid tests and GPs can't have PPEs because you're not seeing travellers because, you know, because they're going to go to hospital. And in February, I saw a family. This is in 2020. So this is a month before lockdown in March. I saw a family come back from Italy and they had diarrhea and vomiting. And, you know, you're going to walk in and go and see the GP or you're going to have a telephone conversation with them. And at that time, we did home visits very easily so they lived like around the corner from the surgery and it was mum dad and both kids and um one of the child had a, a chronic condition that I felt do you know what don't come into the surgery I'm going to pop out and do a home visit and I'll see them and the thing that the mum and dad kept saying to me is that we cannot smell or taste anything this is so different from flu yeah um and I came back and I said I think that the, I think this isn't shortness of breath or a high temperature and I need a COVID test. And they were like, no, they don't meet the criteria for a COVID test. Lo and behold, two weeks later, I get the exact same symptoms. I come home and my son's had a liver transplant. So he's immunocompromised. And now we know about shielding and all sorts. So I took myself up into the family bedroom and said, don't open the door 
because there's this virus that's going around. None of us knows what's going on. And I'm young and I'm fit and I've fought it off very quickly. And my son got taken by my parents who are both type two diabetic. So I knew that he needed to be, even before shielding happened. Mm -hmm. And then it took another three months for Public Health England to go, oh yeah, loss of smell is a symptom. <laughs> and mm -hmm. I think there were so many lessons that you learn and in hindsight I could have been more braver and, and spoke I mean we all there were lots of us there wasn't just me and and there's going to be an incredible powerful three-part series called breathtaking that's going to come out on Monday which is going to be a hard watch I, I can't I don't think I'm going to watch it but exact same thing for me happens in women's health the, the, the level of medical gaslighting the medical misogyny the fact that we tell women it's in your head it's not real for decades we told women brain fog isn't real you know we know that data and research is mainly male-led and most of it is done on a 75 kilo white man unfortunately we know that and then women are sort of seen as little men and it was only in 1993 that they thought oh actually no women need their own research <laughs> because we can't be trusted not to fall pregnant I mean that was the reason that was the reason that was given um and also, unfortunately, sometimes it, it's women, women clinicians who will uphold the internalized misogyny even more. Say, well, my symptoms weren't that bad. Why are you making a fuss? And it, it's it's almost, you know, if I think back to even my training, that it was a female GP at my surgery when I told her I was pregnant as a junior doctor, as a registrar. And that was going on maternity leave. And she said, well, you're still expected to see the same level of patients because your your pregnancy isn't your disability. And she was the fem female yeah. colleague. She was my senior trainer. And, and you look at that and you just think we need to, women stop need to be harder on women. Yeah. Uh, and I think that was partly the biggest driver for this book because I just thought I have this knowledge and I've learned this and I somehow want to unpick all of this because I fundamentally believe that if the woman is well, everybody around her is well. So it's yeah. not just oh, so true. And that that all is it, we could get into a whole thing there about you know there is so much internalized misogyny, and I think you know the the and you've got to realize that women have this internalized misogyny because patriarchy lead us to believe that women have to be a certain way. We have to be young. We have to be a certain weight. We have to be this. So women believe that as well because this is what we've been fed for you know for so long isn't it and it comes right the way back round to at the beginning and you were talking about um being being and feeling heard and if we don't trust our doctors well GPs particularly um we're not going to come back again and it's having that trust as you say if you said well actually hold my hands up you're, you're telling me you've got brain fog but I've never heard of that but you know what I'm going to try and find out rather than brain fog doesn't exist mm. go and go and get on with it yeah absolutely <laughs> right it's the fact that if we give women the tools to understand their bodies and then drive data behind that and then not just data for those that are have the privilege or the level of privilege that we do but we drive that by building the trust at grassroots so the communities have learned to sustain and survive themselves and covid has taught that mm. But they've already got the trust and the economic argument i hate talking about money but we have to talk about money because that's the whole healthcare infrastructure right so if you it makes 
economy and economic arguments have shown us again and again that if you trust women uh, and they tell you what they want and need, actually it's far more cost effective and that is replicated in communities. So Nigerian black women will have completely different needs to somebody like Nagat, who's Pakistani and wears a hijab. And as much as I can have empathy for black women, they have it so much harder on so many different levels statistically, whether you're looking at breast cancer statistics or whether you're looking at menopause care, maternity care statistics, you know, five times more likely to have mortality rates, which I mentioned in my book and everything against that. But there are groups that have started working within their own communities to get the education out there through song or language or the arts or or um, having healthcare advocates from their community who speak the language who are able to come in. Um, and the nuances of trying to get that education across to communities. I ran a contraceptive workshop. So in my book, I cover contraception quite a lot. And we were looking at sort of getting Pakistani women to have gaps between their children because you have the air and the spare. And if you have daughters, well, they're just spares. You need to get the sun. And um, this is, you know, years ago. And we invited all the women and I taught them about contraception, everything from the coil to say condoms and the pill. And at the end of it, even the most intelligent, highly educated woman who was like the solicitor in the room, she goes, oh, thank you. But I'm going to go home and speak to my husband about this and just get get his opinion and chat it through. And it, it occurred to me that's when the penny dropped. It makes no sense to have women's healthcare infrastructures put in place to tackle things like misogyny, internalized misogyny, the patriarchy, if the men aren't there. Yeah. So then it came to doing, say, breast cancer awareness in Somalian women in Tower Hamlets, Newham. And I, we realized that these women aren't going for their screening appointments because they've got children to look after, household chores to do, they can't drive, the nearest you know, place is going to be two bus stops away. So they need the men to stay at home to look after their children. So there are community groups where literally women are strapping kids to their backs or looking after each other's kids so she can go for her mammogram appointment. But that's not viable. So we said we're going to run a workshop with the men, but we can't talk about breasts with men because that's not culturally appropriate for, to Somalian men. And the, one of the women in the group said, but we can make dough balls and put a frozen pea in there and the men will understand that. <laughs> wow. So that's wow. bread dough balls got a group of women, they brought their men and their, and their kids, they made bread dough balls, the men made bread because that's a cultural experience that they do together. Mm -hmm. And then I, as the doctor or the other doctors in the room taught them, this is how you examine, so self-examination, and this is what a lump feels like. And if you catch the lump early, you've got a better prognosis and your wife, the woman that you love, that's here with your children, she will survive and she won't die and cancer is not a death sentence. And the men understood all of them going, I will make sure that my wife and the like the statistics, how cheap and viable was that? Incredibly cheap. Yeah. yeah. It, it, no intervention. You'd, I have this huge issue about this, you know, savior complex. You know, I'm not going to be a savior for black women or Caucasian women. I'm not a Caucasian woman. So how dare I go into a Caucasian community and say to them, you need the Marina coil because this is and likewise. And you've got to be able to accept those cultural nuances. But the way the NHS structure is set up is set up for, unfortunately, a very Eurocentric. Someone who speaks English as a first language doesn't have any neurodiversity like ADHD or autism or learning disability, doesn't have you know, a hearing impairment or a visual impairment, 
and is not from a black and Asian ethnic minority community and is not poor. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, yeah. it's it up for a very specific targeted audience yeah. and everybody else falls to the wayside. Yeah. That is where the cost is the most. Yeah, yeah it is. So, that's what led me to sort out the collective. It, yeah, it's yes, it's brilliant. So you are you're the the forefront of dry and a driving force, um, really ensuring that everybody is seen and heard. And so that is basically what you're talking about there. The communities is all about the health collective, um, and the well being um, of uh, of women charity. Um, so. How do you see the landscape now? I mean, what you're doing with the Health Collective, I think, is absolutely fantastic because I think from what we could see all around the country, there's these wonderful people I see on social media and we're in contact with. We've had them on the mm. podcast. Absolutely, we adore them. And just they are fantastic people doing it for nothing, no monetary um, benefits. They're just doing it for the benefit of their community. And I love what you're doing with the Health Collective. You're gathering up these communities, putting them in a place where they have a voice. They can speak to other people. Uh, how do you, is that going well? And how is the landscape generally? So the landscape is going to be positive. I mean, it's it's off the back of the fact that one of the key drivers of the women's health strategy is that they want equality of healthcare, And I think we can go better because it will be cheaper to get equity. So giving women in that specific community the nuances and, and, and delivering that care, as I said, for the Somalian women. Because we know that not all women are the same and we're not one monolith of one ethnic minority and we've all got different needs. So one of there's two phases to the collective. One is, is and thank you so much to you both because you've been talking about the collective and reposting my posts is to map all the groups. So we've mapped them, not just in England, but in Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland. And by mapping all these groups, then we know the grassroots organizations that they're dealing with. And they also then know the more sort of hardly reach communities such as those that are poverty stricken, those that have um, say digital poverty, because we take it for granted everybody's on social media, not everybody is. And so if you said to me, so Jinty, you, you come and see me one day and you say, Nigga, I want to know how in inner Birmingham do women manage from the South Asian Sikh community endometriosis and how do they talk about menstrual health? Because I want to do a research project and I want to you know, provide sort of solutions. I can be like, I know exactly the group, they're mapped, they're known as sisters, here they are, here's their contact details, um, and go ahead and do this. And no one has ever done this because the groups have never been mapped before because they don't have trust with the Department of Health. So when I first took this idea, this was two years ago, because I was organically being contacted because of my work on TV by groups going, Dr. Nagat, come and see what we're doing in Tower Hamlets. Come and see what we're doing in Manchester. There's a group called Africats that works with African and refugee women um, who are you know, the most hit when it comes to period products and maternity health and FGM. And um, Come and see us in Cornwall, where we've got, again, you know, Afghan refugee women who've, who've landed here. And um, I was thinking we could learn from them because they know exactly what these women want, not us assuming that they want more period products. Actually, that's not what they want at all. <laughs> they just want uh, something to stop their blinking periods. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. To, to, to do that yeah. and educate them around that. And yeah. so um, the idea is, is when we write the clinical pathways, because every single time you, you, you and I know we're sort of professionals, is when you write a diagram or a pathway, 
it's going to be coming from your lived in experience and your experiences unfortunately we see again and again when it comes to writing nhs pathways is going to be always be white centric able-bodied no neurodiversity all the english yeah. of the first and uh, so we're going to fall into the same trap whereas now when it comes to writing the clinical pathways then we've got these groups who will be able to look at the drafts and go actually i wouldn't do that you know i as an yeah, as a as a survivor FGM, I wouldn't want this this I wouldn't want this communicated to me in this way because it doesn't serve my community. So the leaders of the grassroots have direct input and a seat at the table to drive change and equitable change. So it's a huge amount of work. I'm doing this alongside my NHS work and my private practice. Do you have any time? <laughs> you can see I'm <laughs> but this is where um, if I could do anything on this podcast and you guys are so brilliant is to reach out to your communities that listen to you and um, join with your work because you, you know, you're part of the health collective. We want that information and to map the groups that come in. And, and to be fair, um, your signposting has helped us map some groups. So we just need to keep doing more of it because I know that there are more and more. So I need to map. We started matching Jewish women, you know, Sikh women, um, uh, women who are from the Muslim backgrounds, and then all the intersectionalities of, say, Protestant and Catholic, because they also have their own sort of needs and wants. And it's it's mm -hmm. an experiment, and I'm scared that it might not work. But no, I've got to. No. I don't try it. I, then I I'll think. Feel yeah, I think with what what you're you're doing and the passion that you've got for it, and also we've got um, because of the way that you do something in your authenticity, you, people are drawn to you as well to help you. So you've got a lot of people wanting and willing to help so with everybody on on board if is it just in case anyone's listening to our podcast and 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 thinks do you know what i'd like i'm looking to set up a group like that um can they get in contact with you or with somebody to find out if they want to ask questions about a group that, that that's already mapped is that yes so the well-being of women if you go on their website there's a tab that says the health collective as well um on my socials i've made some videos i'll send you the direct email address that they can put Thank through you. to well -being of women so your um listeners can directly ask us and um there are two arms so there's a health expert so i don't run a grassroots organizations but i dip into grassroots as an expert providing education so i do it with mostly punjabi speaking groups um you know pakistani women for whom english is not their first language um so likewise we're looking for those health professionals who understand their communities that they've been working with it was only through sort of learning and listening to um the hearing impairment communities that one of my colleagues who's who's a doctor who's got a hearing impairment said to me in british sign language we don't have a word for menopause no, and i i can't believe that that was something that hadn't even occurred to me yet we understand the trials and tribulations that hearing communities go through because we had Rose Ailing on um, Strictly mm -hmm. and that powerful moment where she stopped the music but was dancing, which gave us an insight that she's not actually listening to music, but yet she's still following the steps, was so exquisitely powerful and really brought to the forefront of how underserved those with a hearing impairment are. And it's 2024 and that shouldn't be the case. No. I, I love like uh, gen z and millennials so being on youtube and 
the World Health Organization's a content creator. They're much, much younger than old fogies like me. And they are so quick to call things out. Yeah. And they're, they're, so, they're so quick to show how things are really dodgy. I'll give you an example. My 13-year-old watched Mrs. Doubtfire. My son watched Mrs. Doubtfire with me. And I thought it was amazing. And at the end of it, he just goes to me, but that man is actually a stalker mum because he dressed up, watched his wife and put his kids into trouble, destroyed her ability to go on a date. And this is actually not a sweet story. You know, that, that, and I, honestly, it was like- Never watch it again, can you? <laughs> and, it, and then it occurred to me, oh my God, Mrs. Doubtfire is actually quite an abusive relationship because he's not stepped up to be a father. He's awful as a husband. She wants rid of him. And yet in his sort of crazy crackpot idea, thought I'll dress up as a woman, as an Irish woman yeah. and pretend to be her housekeeper. And, yeah. and, and meanwhile, his poor wife is made out to be some sort of awful woman for actually just wanting a, a, a nice, decent relationship. Exactly. And she's made out to be some crazy, well, how crazy. could she not love Robin Williams? <laughs> yeah, but like she wants a healthy relationship yeah. of trust and accountability for her children and so that that sort of whole movie talks about gaslighting talks about you know the misogyny the the domestic abuse of all levels the lack of trust that you have the fact that she can't leave her kids in safety with him and I just thought to myself oh my god that was my favorite <laughs> not anymore, <laughs> not anymore. <laughs> I was like okay I better not show him you got mail because that's just catfishing oh, yeah. yeah there's so many once you see it once you, you start, can't yeah. unsee it the gen, the gen z I have to say are very much about boundaries and so we say we've got a lot of work to do and we've started yes we have but this is also an area which also shows that going forward I see it as a real positive like we're not going to take the rubbish or the next generation isn't going to be uh, taking the rubbish. And I think this is where, like, people always say to me, why do you talk about women's health all the time, Dr. Nagat? You know, stop banging that drum, because, yeah, we get it. It needs to be better. And I and I have a quote on my wall by a writer and a poet from America, and her name's um, Colleen Hoover. And she writes about pain. And reading her poems now as an older Nagat, I think she must have had endometriosis, but she writes about pain, and she goes... Uh, my grandmother went through pain and suffering as a woman. My mother went through it. I'm going through it. And I'll be damned if my daughter goes through this. Yeah. And I think when you think of it like that, you think, right, I cannot, with the knowledge that I've got, with the sons that I've been able to bring into this world, not pass on this information, because then I'll be damned if my granddaughters if they get married or my you know any women that come into my life are still in the same suffering yeah enough enough yeah it's yeah. got to stop so lastly we'd like to finish with this statement and question at the end of the knowledge you write um i want to emphasize that the stigma and taboo around women's health and women's biology ends with this book and the knowledge isn't just for the women and those assigned female at birth so I mean, it was obviously for the men. Who else is it for? For the ask? men. It's for the men of our lives. It's yeah. for the, but it's, it's not. And that's why I say when I started off this podcast, the whole reason I wrote this was for my boys. <laughs> it's, it's a women's health book, 
but I want them to understand their mum because my boys are my everything and my world. They're my babies, right? Yeah. And you have your own babies and they never stop being your babies mm-hmm. and you love them and you do everything to protect them. But the one thing we don't do is get them to learn about us. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's for everybody. It's just such a beautiful, beautiful book. Oh, we've loved this. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Nagat. Thank you so much. We shall let you um, go and get something to eat, probably. Yeah, I have to make dinner. I have to do real life stuff. And yes, and oh, uh, real life. God, who needs it? Tomorrow, <laughs> and then I'm off to. Oh, it's got really exciting. I'm off to Dublin. Oh, oh. Well, first time in Dublin. I don't know if you've ever been to Northern well, Ireland. I've been, I've, I've been. Yeah, I've you been, came on my hen weekend. I've been to Dublin a few times. It's my yes, it's lovely. You'll love it. Yeah, I'm going with uh, Professor Joyce Harper. She's at the UCL, isn't she? She's yeah. and um, a little story when I was writing the book I read Joyce's book because Joyce has done the whole span but it's a very clinical scientific very very scientific because it's all based in research work so she's done a a similar book to mine so when I was writing my book I I read her book as a junior doctor and it scared the shit out of me because it's so (laughs) clever no it's so intelligent and clever and I was like, yes. And it, and it formed the building blocks of understanding the science of like women's health. And so when it came to writing my book, my thing was, I want this to be <laughs> as lay as possible. I wanted, I actually gave it to no other doctors to read. There was a couple of other doctors who looked at it just to get the science correct, because you can uh, make, dumb down something to the point where it just isn't medically accurate anymore. Mm-hmm. So I had that real struggle of making sure it's medically evidence-based accurate like you cannot read it any other way it's medically accurate because it is a medical book and then also still have the nuance of being so easily you know you could revise it and then relay it to somebody else and as if you were having coffee with somebody and it's you just having a natter so when it all got done um, my publisher said to me, who are you going to send the first draft to, to have a look and and uh, share to? And I went, can we send it to Joyce? And it went, <laughs> and a, a PDF copy with how it is, as you see it, yeah. was sent to Joyce. I did not sleep for about three nights. <laughs> I was so petrified because she'd be looking at this going, oh, what the hell, what the hell? This is like, so, this, no, this isn't accurate because, you know, she, she's a, she yeah. is, and I gave it also to Dame Leslie Regan as well but so I I I was a a mountain of these women (laughs) heroes and um Joyce then said to me I want to do a podcast and I thought oh god this is either going to go really badly or really well and uh so organized around my clinics we'll do a podcast and the first thing she said was I love it Ah. I welled up I was like, I've got so emotional. And I said to her, you were the one person I really wanted to impress out of everybody. Because I, I had idolized her and read her stuff. And and now we're great mates. And now she's flipping taking me cold water swimming, isn't she? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, be careful what you wish for. <laughs> and then I, I always thought if my colleagues, my medical colleagues and my contemporaries understand what I try to do then it's okay and my contemporaries have been the kindest about this and like you were saying they were like 
oh, I wish I had this when I was younger. Yeah. And that's the best praise that as an author. Completely. Um, be, yeah, because they've just done, the UCL have just done the um, research on the cold water swimming, is it, yeah, haven't they? Have. they? Is, that, yeah. is that why she's... <laughs> why she's dipping every day <laughs> uh, when you're when you're doctors um there's a difference between the scientist and the clinician so the scientists are very much stats and numbers and and raw data whereas the clinician as I was saying earlier it's about the human because my patient isn't a tick box or an exercise mm -hmm. or another. they I'm dealing with the person and all the other sort of mess that sometimes comes with yeah. the person I mean I have loads of mess and around me and so um, stuff that is on paper doesn't relate well clinically. So myself and uh, Joyce, we respect each other immensely. And I don't think she'll mind me saying this if she ever hears this, is that, uh, but we don't always see eye to eye on a lot of things, but her thing is cold water swimming. And I, and I agree, it has a lot of benefits and her paper that's come out. In fact, uh, I will be uh, doing a, a video about it to share on my social soon um, is great. And um, I don't think you should ever replace things like cold water swimming instead of hormone replacement therapy. You need to give your hormones back. And Joyce does respect that. She does say, look, HRT has definitely got a role. But the worry always is, is that, again, cold water swimming, I always say any sort of form of exercise and having time to do that is a privilege. And you cannot inflict that in privilege on somebody. If you look at ultra processed foods and the whole sort of yeah. bandwagon around all that comes from a massive place of privilege I have yeah. to say because uh, food poverty is very very real uh, I see it daily in my clinic and around me and the food bank line is getting longer and longer every single time I drive past it and it's heartbreaking so we've got to always balance that out with the data and then what's happening in reality and in between that find the humanity because that's when magic happens I love that I love that. That's a great place to finish, isn't it? Yeah. Thank you so much, Dr. Nagat. Thank you Thank so you. much. And we look forward to seeing you soon. I'm so glad we did this. This is good. And I adore your work. Honestly, you guys are incredible. Thank Aww, you thank so you. much. Book Collective. So we are reading Caitlin Moran's What About Men? And this week we read Chapter 7, The Pornography of Men, and Chapter 8, The Friendships of Men. Um, <laughs> Razia's been in touch. She's taking part in gorgeous our book. Razia. Gorgeous Razia. Sorry about that. Forgot your first name. Um, she says on The Pornography of Men, bloody hell. She says, TikTok algorithms, terrifying. I have youngsters in my family. I really hope they're not watching this shit. Um, I think Sam is really inspirational at the way he wants to talk to children in schools to help educate them about the dangers of porn, but also about the algorithms and the business of sex, which is really the attention economy. Children need to understand how they are being manipulated. So she talks about this is Sam, isn't it? Sam, that Caitlin, who Caitlin's known since he was he's, he was a little little lad. Yeah. And he um, had an addiction, an online porn addiction. That's right. That started when he was 10 years old. Yes. Um, and nor he couldn't actually perform normal sex because it wasn't the porn that he was seeing. And it was some quite violent porn as well, wasn't yeah. it? It wasn't um, what we'd call normal porn. It was it was quite but, deep. But he said dark it wasn't stuff. he wasn't actually that weird. Like he said he wouldn't know where the no. deep where the dark 
dark web is. So it wasn't real horrific stuff, but he was too young. And it really affected him, didn't it? And and weirdly, um, Caitlin had mentioned him and 10 years ago in her uh, book how to be a woman she'd she'd written i really hope by the time sam comes of age to start watching porn we've started making the want for a better phrase free range ethical nice pornography something that shows sex as something potentially wonderful that a man and women do together rather than a thing that just happens to a woman something where to put it simply everyone comes well she wrote that in 2011 when he was 10 yeah and didn't realize he actually had started watching he'd started it uh, her her little sam but what a lovely lad and how open and honest and he he talks about the um obviously the, the the sex lessons that they get in school and how outdated and out of touch yeah they actually are the sex education um and, and he, like he said, the parent, parents just don't know what's going on. No. But you actually need people like Sam in schools to talking about, talking it. about it and being open and yeah. honest. I mean, does she put some facts here as well, Lou, doesn't she? It's estimated 60 to 99% of men, all men, regularly use porn. With some young men um, that Sam talks, that Sam's talked to saying they'd rather, in his words, have a wank and watch porn than have sex with their girlfriends. Oh, there's a whole other podcast, isn't it? And, and, and Sam what, talks about the algorithms, doesn't he? Yes, yes. Again, Razia mentioned that. Does I didn't even think about that. Did you? No. She does. Caitlin doesn't, does she? No, no. About the algorithms, um, how what you know, it's it's so pushed on to um, young men and men actually in general, because it was only um, it was one of her friends as well that um, he's only got fifty people that he he follows on his Instagram. And all of a sudden, he's getting all this stuff, isn't it? With um, yeah, with women, women, with with women, you know, sort of. uh, And and the thing is, I mean, what do you get on yours? I get, I get bloody tenor ladies and menopause supplements thrown at me every five minutes. Well, I'm getting sofas at the moment because I was, I I I thought, oh, I'd like a new sofa. Can't afford a new sofa, but now I'm getting everything on sofas because I've googled sofas. As soon as you look at something, I know. What about the next chapter, Lou? Um, Razia says again. Caitlin hasn't mentioned um, is that when a man um, or or a woman opens up no sorry when a woman opens up to a man they often look for a solution and if they can't find one they shrug their shoulders and end the discussion and so there's no point if they can't find a solution can they change and do they realize that that's what they're doing and so this is all about friendship isn't it yeah with with men so we'll talk about what Razia says in a minute how did you find this Uh, interesting but not a big surprise on this one because it is just we've spoken about it before about it and men just like to give themselves um a load of facts yeah 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 she does she starts she starts the chapter with discussing the success of the tv program the bbc's white house and mortimer gone fishing have you ever watched it lou yeah it's, it's brilliant, funny. isn't very it? Very funny. I, I, if you haven't watched it, it's just, it's so heartwarming, really funny. And, and it's just two friends, she said it sort of started off, um, they didn't really know what it was going to be about, but it's actually two friends just discussing their lives and, you know, their childhoods, losing parents. It's, it's great for male friendships because yeah. it shows how a male friendship can be. There's a lot of banter as well. Um, which we know they do very well now. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then she looks at her female friendship groups compared with her male, doesn't she? Because yeah, she, she does. says she's got WhatsApp groups with men 
and she's got WhatsApp groups with women. And when she looked, there's quite a stark comparison, isn't there? There is. Um, so for starters, a female WhatsApp group is called Team Tits. Yes. <laughs> and the exchange up was of 100 messages a day from how we've slept and what we're having for tea, all the way through to wars at work, parenting struggles and episodes of mental ill health. There's constant low-level ticker tape of conversation, sharing advice, jokes, and pictures of Adam Horowitz or Beastie Boys looking fit. So that's just a good old fun yeah, female WhatsApp chat group that usually you put on mute because sometimes you get so many messages. That's and it. Then you Catch up, it up when you've got time. Yeah. And she says with my, she says um, the main difference when she tells the men all about what goes on with the women friendship groups is um, they seem envious. Yeah. They, they don't have anything like it. No, do they, they don't. No. And they, are, they, are, they are envious. Yeah. And it's quite upsetting actually as well um, that, you know, she says that genuinely that a guy spent e whole evenings in the pub, um, maybe feeling suicidal, but would never mention it. They talk about the football. Yeah. Um, just. She talked to two male friends, didn't she? Yeah. Separately. And one, she eventually got to the root of his problems. And she said, have you told B about it? This other man. And mm -hmm. he said, no, because I tried to open up, but he sort of, I felt he shut me down. And then she spoke to the, up to B separately. Yeah. And he'd been through a rough time. And she said, did you tell C yeah. <laughs> about it? And he said, no, I no. tried to, but he shut me down. No. So they're both as bad as each other wanting to talk. Yeah. Yeah. But don't know how to get into that conversation. No. That, and it made me very sad. Yeah. Yeah, very sad. It's, it's it's it like, but like a bit like Razia said, maybe they feel like they have to, for women if they haven't got a solution to their friend's problem, but they don't really about, know what to say. But it's, it's not about problem. solutions, is it? But it goes right back to that school childhood thing where they never learnt to have those no. conversations. They don't know how to do it. Perhaps no. Um, there was a statistic here that 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 I kind of gulped at. Um, she talks about um, men going their own way in incel culture, um, ideology, ideologies, <laughs> I put too many L's in there, <laughs> ideologies, which it is estimated that 70% of young men have clicked on, read or been exposed to. 70%. And hopefully most of them just come off it, but there are obviously are yeah. those that go down, go down, down, that, that, down route. that Down yeah. that route. Yeah. But yeah, so I mean, even her husband, he's, he's you know, it, it's really affected him. And he, he actually, I love the, the very end of that chapter and that they're talking, aren't they? Yes. And um, he, he says, I'm in my 40s or 50s and the friendship group I thought I'd have hasn't really happened and I don't know why. And he says, and he thinks for a minute, and he said, a verb, friendship is a doing word. Yes. Which is so telling. It's, it is, absolutely. And she says that in the last year since she's been writing this book and talking to all these male um, friends about male friendship and how it differs to female friendship, she's noticed something fascinating. Men have basically started copying women realizing they were slightly envious of female re friendships and subsequently being inspired by them so that's something isn't that it that is good and so it's they noticing should be. and making yeah. a change making yeah. a positive change 
Yeah, but I love that, a verb, a doing word. A doing word. Yeah. So next week we'll be reading chapter nine, Men Talking to Women. Looking forward to that one. Mm. And chapter 10, The Advice of Men. Oh, I bet they've got a lot to say on that too. Oh gosh, full of advice. That's one of the problems. <laughs> WI Lou. Well, I haven't dated myself. No, I haven't either. I've I haven't never... had the time this no, week. No, I haven't made I the don't cinema. Know where it's, don't know where it's got. You were going to the cinema. I wanted to go to the cinema, but it wasn't on locally and I haven't had time again to oh. go anywhere. The intention was there. Well, I think we'll just. Life's keep it... got in the way yeah, this week. That's what happens. It does. And as Razia said, the Monday to Friday, nine to five. Yeah. Needs to be gone, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, it does. But I have a new one for this week because oh, so I'm um, an eye roll. So we are coming. We're sort of mid February now, and next month is International Women's Day, isn't it, Lou? On the eighth of March, it is also our three-year anniversary. We recorded our very first episode um, that week, the day before International Women's Day, on the seventh of March. So it's our third anniversary. So we're celebrating that week by um, well, it's always a celebration of oh, International every Women's day Day. Is a party in we, our lives. Exactly. And we always have fantastic um, guests on. So they're all a celebration of that. But um, that week we are interviewing a lady called Louise Butcher, who is known as the topless runner. And she had a double mastectomy, breast cancer, um, a while ago. And she runs topless with all her scars and for um, body positivity. And she is absolutely amazing, she's isn't fantastic. she? We love her. And the best thing about it, she's not from Devon, but she now lives in Devon. So we are going to go and visit her and run with her, not topless. <laughs> because we might get arrested yeah. um but we are gonna run with her in our pants and bras aren't we Lou we are we are yeah. that is the easy bit it's the running <laughs> that's the hard it is bit the easy bit meeting her is going to be the loveliest bit oh fun that would be fantastic so we're going to video that and there's all sorts of other things happening which um which you may may or not want to get involved on in but you will see on our Instagram feed and hear all about on here so the WI we don't run, but we're going for a little run with. I only run if somebody's runner. chasing me. Yeah. So our WI just to do a bit before the ninth, the eighth and ninth of March is to do a bit of running, Lou, and training for our body positivity run with Louise. Um, so Runners World, the magazine, give this advice, okay? If you've never run before or you haven't run for a long time, one great way is is, is to do a walk jog run um, or a walk run program with your 20 minute target in mind. Focus on a few minutes of running or jogging, followed by a period of walking. <laughs> you think you could do like five seconds of running? And then just walk. <laughs> they suggest aiming to run for three minutes and walking for one minute. Continue to alternate until you reach your time goal. Um, and treat your training, another tip would be um, treat your training time like um, you would an important appointment. And if you're really struggling to commit, find out, find a workout buddy, well, we've already got one, yeah. um, or a group so that you could have a solid reason to get out there. So that is our WI. You and me have got to go twice next week if we can fit That's that fine. in. I mean, I did the couch to 5K. Well done. Um, but then I went back on the couch again. Yeah. That was a while ago. Did you run back ago. to your couch? No, hobbled. <laughs> hobbled. 
neither of us have got very good feet. Lou's got plantar fasciitis and I've got um, Morton's neuroma. Uh, so we've got it all going on. <laughs> we haven't started off too well. <laughs> But we should be in our bra and pants going for a run and we're going to, you know, so if you want to fancy a bit of running and join us in our little couch to 5k trot around the block in our undies. Have you got a quote for us, I Lou? I do, I do. So we had the sad news this week that the body shop has gone into liquidation. Oh, so sad. I mean, that was so big for us in the 80s. Oh, my God. Anita Roderick? Ro- Roddick. Roddick. Yeah. How how amazing was she at oh, the time? Fantastic. And what a visionary. So, I th- and I know she she's uh, sadly passed as well. So yeah. I just thought I found a lovely quote from her and I thought we, it would be good to use this week. So it's, if you think you're too small to make a difference, you've never been to bed with a mosquito. Thank Love you, that. Anita. And Thank you, Anita. Very sad news about the body shop. Yeah, but she started something, didn't she, there? I yeah. mean, and we've had many wonderful businesses since then. Absolutely. That's all those corporates got involved in <clears throat> yeah. her business, didn't they? Oh, yeah, So we hope your tea's not gone cold and that you'll join us next Sunday for The Collective. We would love you to subscribe, favourite and review our podcast. It really helps us spread the word. If you've enjoyed our podcast, you can buy us a coffee and help us by going to ko-fi.com forward slash Womankind Collective. <laughs> so slashes again. <laughs> so slashes and hashes. Um, the link is in our podcast show notes. Please head over to our Instagram page, Womankind Collective, to leave comments or DM us with your thoughts or watch us and our guests on our Womankind Collective YouTube channel. And lastly, you'll find all the links, guest details and our hashtag Where's My Clinic campaign petition for a menopause clinic in Devon on the podcast. Yes, and you'll also find a link to the lovely Dr. Nagat's book, The Knowledge. So thank you very much to Dr. Nagat. Everybody needs. Absolutely amazing. Um... Right, you're going to get your running shoes on, Lou? Oh, Off we Jesus. pop. Cup of tea first. Biscuits. Blimey, O'Reilly. We need yeah, some chocolate carbs. Biscuit. We need some <laughs> carbs. Chocolate digestive first. Yeah. <laughs> See you next week. <laughs>